So I want to talk tonight about the healing power of the Dharma. Um, but before I do, there's um, uh, the New Yorker often seems to have these um, uh, images that are so relevant for our life, and uh, so there's a there's a clinician and a patient on a couch. And uh, the client is saying, could we up the dosage? I still have feelings. <laughs> so I have a question. I mean, I think that says a lot about, because, you know, humor, the, the requirement of humor requires a little bit of truth. And so I think that it actually speaks to a little bit of the dynamic sometimes of our expectations in, in the Western culture or in, in the, the sort of a certain medical modality. Um, but given your experience this week, I mean, this is actually not a question that's totally outside the box. You could actually receive this question in a session in a different way, perhaps. So given your experience this week, how would you respond, possibly? I mean, just, I mean, this is, this is a cartoon. This is not a real case. So, <laughs> so just, you know, how would you respond? Could we up the dosage? I still have feelings. And your response would be? Where do you feel that in your body? Where do you feel that in your body? How are you relating to that? How are you relating to that? What is it that you don't want to feel? Would you really be happy without any feelings? Would you really be happy without any feelings? Mm. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I just want, I mean, this is a, a facetious way, but I just want to suggest that you are already integrating this experience. That, you know, that the separation, I think, is an illusion. And so I want to talk, uh, some of the underlying theme of the talk tonight will be this experiential integration. And that the, this integration is a lived experience. It's, it's not so much about integration as living into an integrating. That life is a verb, not a noun. And, and really, just to even look at the template of your practice, I would dare say that very few of you, if any of you, followed all of the invitations or the instructions that we gave to the T. Right? I mean, all of the things around the breath, the body, the walking, the emotions. Did you follow everything that we said? Because as soon as the invitation landed, you began to integrate it through the filter of your experience. You already began to apply it, given your life experience, given your backgrounds. We never, actu we never actualize something in the way that we're instructed. So how many of you play a musical instrument? And do you play exactly like your instructor? How do you play your cl clinical practice? Do you do you do your clinical work just like your supervisor? So as soon as we begin to live into these invitations, we actually begin to influence and change them to make them relevant for our lives and our work. And really, I want to acknowledge the, the multitude of differences in, in just even in this room that we come 
from different life experiences, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different genders, orientations, physical abilities. We come from large families. We come from small families. We come from happy families. We come from abused families. We could go on and on, but all of these cultural expressions of your life come into integrating your, your path, your spiritual practice, and your clinical work. Even the Buddha could only point the way, but not necessarily give an exact method. The Buddha did not do any enlightening. Or else, actually, there would have been a lot more enlightened people. And there were, there were a lot of enlightened people in his time, but there were far greater numbers of folks who didn't get enlightened. There is no teacher, no Buddha, no therapist that will do the enlightening for us. So we've talked a little bit about the, the different paradigms in which our Western psychological mode um, comes with and where the Dharma comes from and the, and, 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 um, the cultures of origin in which the Dharma arose. So often within our Western psychological paradigm, people seek help when there's been uh, a decline in functioning. When something's, when an event ha- that has occurred and there's been a negative impact and there's been a decline. My experience with, with um, this practice that comes to us from the Dharma is that it's an ongoing practice that, that, that can be very preventative I mean, uh, um, Shona was talking about uh, uh, that it would be helpful to, to focus on positive mind states, the development of positive mind states. And this is what the Dharma actually includes in the awareness of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That it's a support w- when our path either goes up or down in, those, in, in, that, in that cycle of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. But the goals of the paradigm are the same, even though they may come from different perspectives. And that is, what will lead to happiness? And in my own experience, I find them to be mutually complementary. So in my own experience... Um, within five years, I had, um, uh, I had my own recovery from multiple addictions. I had the beginning of my meditation practice, and I had the start of my clinical training. And as I got clean and sober from all sorts of materials, what became clear in my own therapy was dealing with really difficult family of origin issues, um, the impact, the internalization of, of external oppression, whether it's racism or homophobia, this, this self-esteem that for me was in the garbage can, and all of those mood disorders that sort of cascaded into that experience, whether it's depression or anxiety, trauma, and all self-medicated around the chemical addiction. So I spent about eight years in, in the modality that we're familiar with in psychotherapy. God bless him. He <laughs> saved me. And I, towards the end of that, I was motivated to do my clinical training, which lasted about five years. And over the next 13 uh, when my clinical work began in the public health system in, in, in San Francisco, I began offering my experience in mindfulness to 
the different venues that I was working in. So um, the first venue that I offered it was in the North of Market Homeless Shelter to really stressed populations. And what surprised me was how many people had many more years' experience in meditation than I did. Because their doors were through recovery or the, um, uh, the treatment for ADD or um, in programs that actually cultivated this. When I moved to General Hospital, I began to continue this, this exploration of how to bring mindfulness and spiritual practice into the treatment of mood disorders, addiction, and what became my particular interest, which was the multicultural training of clinicians. So I just began doing five minutes with clients. I began doing... Um, five minutes in my group work. I began comparing in my group supervisions with interns, uh, group supervision with mindfulness practice and group supervision without, giving them the comparative experience. And I said this in a group, uh, one of our groups, that The integration for me also happened on a personal level because in the environment of public health, it is completely stressed. You're seeing clients back to back, you're writing notes, um, your, your clinical notes in between, and you forget. You forget to completely take care of yourself. And the example that I used was, I forgot to go to the bathroom until it became really urgent. That is how lost in the external situation that, that, that uh, was being created for me. And so I made it a practice to do walking meditation to the restroom. <laughs> and I said to everybody, you know, you can ask me to multitask any time of the day except when I'm walking to the bathroom. <laughs> and really just trying to bring a sense of mindfulness, weaving it in, in small ways. And all through this time, there was one unresolved issue in my life, which was my relationships with my parents. And after I had decided to leave my own course of therapy, I said to Dan that... um, The one reason I would return is when my parents passed because of these unresolved issues. And so over the intervening years, I used this practice in whatever ways I could, and there were multiple ways that that it came to manifest. And I became a best friend to each of my parents. So my father passed in February. And we were completely clear. There was nothing that was unsaid or unseen. And in that space of clarity he was able to offer me his last, most subtle and most profound teaching, which is how to pass. And, and, and I, I really believe that in, when we cleared, we were, he was able to allow and I was able to allow myself to be with each other the very moment that he left. And it was a few weeks later when I remembered that, that uh, thing that I had said to Dan before I left my, my course of therapy. And I realized that I didn't need to go back. And so that, in my experience, is, is the complementary nature of, of um, the, 
the beauty of the clinical Western paradigm and also the beauty of the Dharma and how they can create this path through suffering, which is really the Buddha's first teaching, which is the Four Noble Truths, the first turning of the wheel. That the first noble truth is that there's suffering in the world, external conditions that are, that are difficult, and that, uh, that sometimes dukkha is, 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 is translated not just with suffering, but just discomfort, stress, frustration. And that suffering has a cause. So that's the second noble truth, that the cause is attachment or craving. And just as there's a cause, there's also an end or a cessation, the third noble truth. With the fourth noble truth being the, um, the guidelines or the path from suffering. So as Mark mentioned that, that last night, that there's a distinction that in the Buddhist psychology and, the, and in the Buddhist terminology between suffering and pain. That internal suffering is different than the external pain of the world, the conflict, the abuse, the trauma, the oppression, the war. The teachings do not say that it is possible to live a life free from pain of these external circumstances. The teachings do say that it's possible not to add any more suffering to these external circumstances. That there is a way in which the mind and the heart can be free. But most of the time, we're actually not living into the first noble truth. We hear the words, and we might actually understand that. We might understand them. But we are so reactive to our experience that we're usually trying to change it. And so we've said, in this retreat over and over again, that, that instead of simply meeting the life that's arising for what it is, we are either pushing it away because we don't like it or wanting more because it's pleasant. And that those, those experiences that feel neutral to us, we completely are oblivious to, that we take for granted. All of this back and forth is a manipulation of the actual experience as it arises. And on some level, this manipulation, this back and forth, this pushing away or pulling towards you becomes exhausting. It is actually cognitively dissonant because it is not the life that is unfolding. The life that is unfolding becomes a life that we want to be different. And that is actually a double bind. And we know that double bind, no-win situations can really lead to pathology if it's not, if there's no awareness around it. We can do this with our own lives, but we can also do this with the lives of the people that we work with wanting clients to be somewhere else other than where they are, wanting the work to be something other than it is. So the invitation of mindfulness is to go beyond what we think we know about our lives, beyond what we think our lives should be like, beyond what we want our lives to be, and explore what is the life that is being lived? Jonah talked about re-perceiving. Perceiving the larger picture of who we are despite this double bind. 
one of the practices that we didn't have a chance to really get into very deeply, but we did mention, is this practice of noticing, simply noticing the unpleasant, pleasant, neutral qualities of our life, instead of going to the reactivity of pushing them away or pulling them towards us. This is a practice called Vedana. Simply to notice the pleasant or unpleasant characteristics of a situation without needing to do anything about it. Uh, Anna uh, mentioned Ajahn Buddha Dasa as one of the Thai master meditation masters, and he says, once we can regulate this kind of feeling tone, we will be able to keep life on the correct path. When we are foolish about Vedana, we fall under the power, under its power, and become slaves to materialism, which always happens when we indulge in material pleasures, that is, the flavors of feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. All the crises of the world occurring have, been, have their origin in people not understanding this and giving into Vedana and being enamored by the pleasant or unpleasantness of a situation. Feeling tones entice us to act like this, which leads to disagreements, quarrels, conflicts, and eventually war. Noticing just the feeling tone, the unpleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality, prevents us from being lost in that situation. And as we live into and explore this this experience of the first noble truth, distinguishing suffering from pain, we begin to see the nature of the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is attachment or clinging. So, um, uh, at least for myself, I can be a pretty oppositional meditator. You know, I hear an instruction and I do the opposite. Uh, And so on a retreat, um, I really had a problem with the walking instructions. You know, the back and the forth, and the back and the forth. And it was a day like, you know, the first couple of days of this retreat, this brilliant sun shine and and it was and the temperature was really perfect and i really wanted to go into the hills that was what i wanted my walking meditation to do and i thought that the the actual walking instructions were ridiculous and so that was the end of my story i thought you know that's what i was going to do and i did i went for a walk i went you know for 2 hours i communed with nature and I came back, and what was so interesting was I still wasn't happy. I still wanted the retreat to be something else. I somehow wanted a better retreat. And what I realized was I wanted the wanting to go away. I thought I had satisfied it. And I hadn't. Our minds are so deeply conditioned towards this aspect of wanting and craving. In our culture, unfortunately, we glorify this aspect of desire. So I was just reading an article about one of our major Silicon Valley companies, which will go unnamed, but you know it. And they don't believe in doing focus groups to find out what people want. It doesn't ask what people want. It tells them what they're going to want next. That is scary. Because it really means that our whole economy is based on this this creation of desire. So I don't know if you know this um, 
this man, Louis C.K., but he has this YouTube video on, and it's, it's brilliantly funny. It's called uh, Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. <laughs> it got two million hits in two months. So, and this is a transcript of it. I was on an airplane, and there was high-speed Internet on the airplane. This is the newest thing I know that exists. And I'm sitting on the plane, and they go up. You open your laptop, and you can go on the Internet. It's fast. I'm watching YouTube clips. It's amazing. I'm in an airplane. And then the Internet breaks down. And the guy next to me goes, this is bullshit. (laughs) Like how quickly the world owes something to him that he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. There's a kind of entitlement here. There's a kind of addiction that, you know, more is better. And there is also the inability to be content. So, in certain of the Buddhist lineages, the Buddha's last teaching is called the Bequeath Teaching Sutra, and he writes... You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. For people who do not for people who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. How deeply can we feel into this teaching, the truth of this teaching? What would our life be like if we were not only content with the things around us, but about who we are? So often we deal with the core issues in ourselves, in the people that we work with, around not feeling good enough around not looking good enough, around not doing good enough, around not being good enough. What would your life look like if all of who you are was enough in this moment? This is the experience that we wish to provide for the people that we work with. And one of the people that we work with is ourselves. Our mind has been deeply conditioned to satiate this experience of desire and craving. And we're unaware of the consequences of satiating that desire and craving. Because the consequence is that the craving and attachment of desire can never be satiated. The irony is that all craving is the craving for no craving. All craving is the craving for no craving. It seeks that level of contentment. So, I mean, I'm speaking from my own experience in, with the addicted mind. I know that in the heights of my own addiction, I was looking for that high, that plateau of satisfaction that I wanted to last forever. But in the sense, in the case of chemical addiction, there's always a crash. But that's true. That template is true for any object of desire. That it's ephemeral. That it changes. All craving actually seeks its own destruction. It seeks satisfaction. But satiating craving doesn't really create satisfaction. 
Why? Because craving and desire does not have insight. It has no wisdom. There is no awareness. It doesn't have the ability to see the truth, which is the cause of suffering is craving and desire itself. Only awareness, only our mindfulness practice cultivates the insight into the truth. And just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, craving, and suffering, it so too can be reconditioned to be aware, content, and at peace. We think that our freedom is dependent. We think that our freedom from wanting is dependent on the object of our desire. But actually our spiritual freedom is dependent on our internal experience. It's our relationship to our experience, which, is, which is, means, in this case, our relationship to wanting. So freedom is not about getting an object to satisfy our desire. But the door to freedom is the, is the awareness and the exploration of desire itself, of wanting itself. So the next time the, the experience of wanting arises, of anything, see if it's possible to just drop the object and turn the awareness towards the experience of wanting itself. It could be like my wanting the walking instructions to be different. Or it could be the wanting of the hunger of the next meal. Or the wanting of the intimacy of a relationship. Or the wanting of a new job or career. Are those, is that the experience of the wanting, what is that? That is the experiment that we live into around the Four Noble Truths. And just as we have said in different ways, the awareness of the experience is not the experience itself. So the awareness of the craving means that you're not lost in it. The awareness of the craving is actually a doorway into the third noble truth, which is that the cessation of suffering is possible. This is the the Buddhist version of the Christian good news, because (laughs) it would be bad news if there were only two noble truths. (laughs) But we have four. And so this is the start of the good news. Because as we bring our awareness to discomfort, uh, those unpleasant experiences, we actually begin to break that cycle of suffering, that conditioned reactivity. This is why sitting with discomfort in the body, just as an example, is such a valuable experience. We were talking about that practice of the itch this morning. This is why the practice of the itch is so meaningful and profound, even though it feels so mundane. When an itch arises, you know that it's not life-threatening. So what's the big deal? What is the other side of the itch? Have you ever seen it? Because if you haven't seen it, there's a a piece of your life that you actually don't know. And it doesn't take that much effort to get to. But the conditioned response is to, what? Scratch. Get rid of it. How many itches in your life do you actually scratch in order to get rid of? 
Pema Chodron says, there are 37 trillion kinds of itches. But at the root of all of those itches is one common denominator, craving. And this is why the invitation is to go into and explore the craving. By the way, I left my job at General in order to go to Thailand to ordain as a monastic. And, um, and so um, this practice of sitting with discomfort came up so prominently because in Thailand, in the, in the temples, on the platforms that the monks sat, they were not wood, they were number one, concrete. And there's no such thing as a zabutan or a zafu. So you're sitting on a piece of cloth on concrete through dharma talks that are about three or four hours long. And I don't understand Thai. (laughs) It was a very interesting practice because there was a larger reason that I was there. And so, and so this, this sitting with discomfort was so profound, being able to go back to it over and over again. So the fact that there is a cessation of suffering, do you believe that? Do you believe that it's possible to dissolve the attachment or the craving? I wouldn't worry about it. Because even if you have doubt, even if you don't quite completely buy it, there's the fourth noble truth, which there's a path. There's a guidelines. And as the Buddha said, Just do it and see for yourself. See for yourself if this path actually opens the space and and you can taste those moments of freedom from, from attachment. And to say that that's actually a path that you don't have to get to. You've been living it this past week. It's here. The first factor of the Eightfold Path is wise understanding or view, which on some intuitive level you have in order to even get here. That there is something inside that, that resonated with this activity that leads to we have also talked about wise intention, sort of steering the direction, the trajectory of your life. Who is it that you really see yourself being in the world? What is it that you see yourself doing in the world? And, and what will support that? Which is, how do you live an ethical life? And the next three factors are, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. Supported by the practices that we are doing in this retreat, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. We've also said in um, the different Dharma talks, that mindfulness is intentional, paying atten- is intentional paying attention with kindness. In a very real sense, as Mark was indicating last night, mindfulness is our experience with love. This paying attention. I have a, I have a new granddaughter Actually, she's just a year old last weekend. And I know this, but even even for those of you who don't have newborn granddaughters, all of us have been children. And we know that if a child is not paid attention, they don't experience 
love. We can say that we love the kid, but unless that attention is being given in the moment, the child doesn't experience it. We don't experience it. The more mindful attention that you give your own experience, the more you are giving yourself a profound experience of self-love. And it may not feel like that, because it may not seem like your cognitive understanding of love. But you are meeting each moment of your life with this gentle kindness, not needing it to be any different than it is, not pushing parts of yourself away because you don't like it, not wanting yourself to be something else because you happen to like those characteristics. But you are totally accepting who you are and where you are. This is love that we look for everywhere else in the world. And yet, it is right here with our own experience. So often, this is the work we also do as clinicians. Clients search for love that they cannot provide to themselves until you show them how. And you can show them how by how you've done it, how mindful you are. We've talked about the, the, patholo- the rampant pathology of the self-critic in our culture. How we say things to ourselves that we would never say to other people. And yet, and yet the mind is, um, berates our experience. This mindfulness is the corrective experience to that self-critic. As suffering moves through awareness, as opposed to around it, as it moves through awareness, just like that itch, we get to see the other side. we usually are really looking at only the 10,000 joys of our life. We actually would like to throw away the 10,000 sorrows if we could. But in that intention of doing so, we actually throw a piece of ourselves away. Mindfulness really is the invitation, can we be with all of our life? So as part of my ordination, um, I had to, you know, um, get my hair shaved, my head shaved. Um, and what most of you don't know is, is that at the time, I had hair down to here. And I had, I had long hair since I was 13, actually. So, um, uh, my partner Stephen um, came over for the ceremony, and the ceremony was, was with the Western practitioners in the in the uh, monastery. So there were about twenty-five people, and um, and I was in white robes that are the initial um, stages of the ordination. And there was a monk that was sort of uh, well. First of all, I had Stephen cut the ponytail off, and then the monk started. Uh, sh- uh, shampooing or lathering the head in order to take this, you know, old-fashioned Gillette razor that uh, unscrewed at the bottom and flipped over and put the razor blade in. And this is my father's generation. And as he began to shave 
the hair. I had all these flashes. You know how you sit on your cushion and you have flashbacks. I had all these flashes that around, you know, my, my mom arguing with me um, uh, to cut my hair. Or uh, when I went to the ordination, she had gotten used to my long hair and was begging me not to cut it. And, <laughs> and, and um, so all of this stuff around, around how I looked came flashing into my memory. And I remembered the moment I decided to grow my hair long. And I was 13. And I remember now vividly, but I had completely, it was a totally repressed memory. I was 13 looking at myself in a mirror. And I hated how I looked. I hated this gay boy who did not look like any of my European-American counterparts. I was living a... I didn't even have the words to put on the life that I was living at that point. There was so much pain. And I wanted to be someone different. And so I grew my hair long to change the... um, shape of my face, to hide behind, perhaps. And as soon as I made that decision, it just got buried. And I never revisited it. And I just walked through life. And, and until the razor started cutting, it's, it, it sounded like the sawing of redwood trees <laughs> in my head. And I was, I was sobbing because I was going through not just all of that pain of that memory, but also the rage of having to live a life that was not authentic for this 38 years. And there was nowhere to go. There was nothing to do. You know, half of it was already gone. And so... This is the purification that some of you, many of you, maybe all of you have experienced on the cushion. When the memories come up, when, 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 the, when the cascading sensations come into your awareness, and the invitation is just to be with it, to notice it, to notice the next one, And there is a profound letting go. Because letting go is not throwing away, which often we do. And and throwing away could be a transitional point to letting go. But letting go is not casting aside. Letting go is allowing your awareness to meet the moment for what it is and it falls away. And as all these memories came up in that moment, as all the emotions, as all the rawness came up, I was able to be with this this intense self-hatred, this intense rage, in ways that I couldn't do when I was 13. I just didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the skills. This path is called a purification of the heart and the mind. But what comes up for purification is not within our control. It just arises and it asks, can you be with me? right now. The possibility of the third noble truth invites us into that we are so much more than just our suffering. 
can we be present for that so much more? So I got my hair cut and I came back. I took, you know, after a while I took off robes and I came back and um, my friend said, so when did you butch it out? <laughs> and their next question was, are you going to grow your hair long again? And I said, you know, I don't know. But if I do, it won't be for the same reasons. And there's freedom in that. I don't tell you this story because I think that you will relate to a gay man, although you might. I don't tell you the story because I think you'll relate to a person of color, although you might. I tell you the story because there's a place in which all of us can meet because we suffer. And that this is not a story about suffering. It's a story about the ending of suffering. And that is freedom. we continue to pay attention without judgment. We move through experience as opposed to the going around, whether it's denial or repression or feeling overwhelmed or... Tangpulu Sayadaw, who is one of the Burmese masters that came over to um, uh, Santa Cruz County, actually, said... If you know it, meaning suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round and round. This is true for our collective experience as well. So there's an article in the New York Times recently that um, they were starting to do mindfulness trainings for people who were deployed to Iraq to... um, uh, to be more aware of their emotions and to prevent um, PTSD. So this is an interesting passage from that article. One, a veteran of several uh, deployments to Iraq said he was out to dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said that he and his friends were being obnoxious. The vet set, said, at one time I might have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This reconditioning is not just making that particular event with less suffering. He is going to cause less suffering in the world when he goes back to Iraq. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it. That is a highly evolved capacity that we take for granted. Tell that to people. Tell that to yourself. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it. So at East Bay Meditation Center, some of our teachers work with um, the Oakland School District. And one of the teachers had a nine-year-old boy come up and say, you know, I just found out something. When I get angry, I don't have to do anything about it. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. The preciousness of this practice is the potential not just for our personal healing, but the healing of our communities. This nine-year-old is the future of Oakland. There will be suffering in the world. That's what the Buddha said. But it doesn't have to stick. on one of the retreats for gay men that I taught, this 
um, piece of writing came to me after the retreat was over. I am always to some extent on guard. I'm old enough that when I came of age, being homosexual was still listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school used to boast of going and rolling the queers. With very few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there positive messages or role models. All this comes from the unquestioned heterosexist privilege that is to a great extent still with us. I have dealt with debilitating low self-esteem and depression all my life. So in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I am quite sure would not have happened anywhere else. It was so beautiful to me to be in the company of other gay men, have each having humbly come to practice. This huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do, and now I know more how to do it. Why we get together to practice is so profound. The value of your practice has the potential of not just touching one person's life, but it ripples out just like the practice of metta, changing and transforming communities and the world. Each time you practice awareness, you're transforming your world, but you are transforming the world. It is not just about our personal salvation or enlightenment. It is about our collective journey towards freedom. There's a direct connection of what you're doing in this retreat with how we are in the world and the communities that we live in. The creation of the peace in the world that it so desperately needs starts here with us creating peace in our own experience. That's the magnitude of our practice. Can you feel how great that journey is? And that's the invitation of the Dharma. Just allowing all the activities and the words and the exercises of the day to begin to fade along with the vibration of the bell. yourself the permission to just really sink into the silence again, being with the preciousness of the last hours of this retreat. Returning to the silence. returning to the awareness and returning to the possibility of freedom in this moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.